Good morning and welcome. My name is Reverend Mari Caballero, and it's great to see all your faces. Happy Father's Day to those of you who celebrate. And I want to let you know that if you have found yourself here for the first time, we want to say an extra special welcome to you. So we come from a very long heritage that says we've got a spark of the divine that resides in each one of us. I believe it was the Reverend Ralph Waldo Emerson that first said so in a sermon. So we like to start off each service, each Sunday, by greeting the holy in our midst, by turning around and saying hey to the people around you. And now, if you'll join me in the words by which we light our chalice, it's found in your order of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. The opening words are a poem called Kindness from Words Under the Words by Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know that kindness really is you, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness how you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. He, too, was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it, speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Every week when we come together, we have new folks joining us and folks coming back. And the new folks are bringing all of their religious experiences or lack thereof. And the old folks, old folks to us, not necessarily in age, um, <laughs> they are bringing all of their religious experiences. And some of them may have changed since they last walked in the door. And we all get together under the same roof. One way we do that cohesively is by rallying around our mission statement, 
Please join me in reaffirming it. We gather in community to nurse souls, transform lives, and do justice. Today's reading is by a woman named Moja Kaf. It's titled, My Grandmother Washes Her Feet in the Sink of the Bathroom at Sears. My grandmother puts her feet in the sink of the bathroom at Sears to wash them in the ritual washing for prayer, wudu, because she has to pray in the store or miss the mandatory prayer time for Muslims. She does it with great poise balancing herself with one plump matronly arm against the automated hot air dryer after having removed her support knee highs and laid them aside, folded in thirds, and given me her purse and her packages to hold so that she can accomplish this August ritual and get back to the ritual of shopping for housewares. Respectable Sears matrons shake their heads and frown as they notice what my grandmother is doing, an affront to American porcelain, a contamination of American standards by something foreign and unhygienic, requiring civic action and possible use of disinfectant spray. They fluster about and flutter their hands, and I can see a clash of civilizations brewing in the Sears bathroom. My grandmother, though she speaks no English, catches their meaning, and her look in the mirror says, I have washed my feet over Iznik tile in Istanbul. With water from the world's ancient irrigation systems, I have washed my feet in the bathhouses of Damascus over painted bowls imported from China among the best families of Aleppo. And if you Americans knew anything about civilization and cleanliness, you'd make wider washbins anyway. My grandmother knows one culture, the right one as do these matrons of the Middle West. For them, my grandmother might as well have been squatting in the mud over a rusty tin in a vaguely tropical squalor. Mexican or Middle Eastern, it doesn't matter which. When she lifts her well-groomed foot and puts it over the edge, you can't do that, one of the women protests, turning to me. Tell her she can't do that. We wash our feet five times a day, my grandmother declares in hotly in Arabic. My feet are cleaner than their sink. Worried about their sink, are they? I should worry about my feet. My grandmother nudges me. Go on, tell them. Standing between the door and the mirror, I can see at multiple angles my grandmother and the other shoppers, all of them decent and good-hearted women, diligent in cleanliness, grooming, and decorum. Even now, my grandmother, not to be rushed, is delicately drying her pumps with tissues from her purse, for my grandmother always wears well-turned pumps to match her purse. I think in case someone from one of the best families of Aleppo should run into her here in front of the Kenmore display. I smile at the Midwestern woman as if my grandmother has just said something lovely about them. And I shrug at my grandmother as if they had just apologized through me. No one is fooled. 
but I hold the door open for everyone, and we all emerge on the sales floor and lose ourselves in the great common ground of housewares on Markdown. Now please join me in prayer and meditation. This has been a week for the books. Dear God of love and compassion, great mystery, that interconnects us all. We ask that you be in our hearts as we celebrate pride and mourn the dead, as we celebrate Ramadan in solidarity with our Muslim friends and mourn bigotry. Guide our hands to take action. Guide our feet to persevere. In this silence for a few moments, I would like for us to remember the victims and their families, including the shooter in the Orlando massacre at Pulse. We extend our compassion to all. Amen. So it has been a tremendously sad week for so many of you who have been deeply affected by the massacre in Orlando last week. We're becoming ever numb to news of gun violence. As CNN reports just yesterday that 136 mass shootings have happened in the first 164 days of just this year. And how are they defining mass shootings? Four or more killed in the same location by the same person. But the scale of this attack, with its final death toll still uncertain as several victims remain in critical condition, along with the fact that it took place in the assumed safe haven of a gay club during Pride Month, that's just rattled so many of us to the core. In an interfaith vigil earlier this week, I shared that to me, knowing how sacred Latino nights at gay clubs can be, what a sanctuary they are to the gay Latino community, it felt to me as if blood had been spilled on holy ground. During June Pride Month, LGBTQ folks tend to go out dancing more than they typically do. Even the homebodies, I'll admit, I like a good Netflix and chill <laughs> in cozy PJs. But even the homebodies have some friends that'll drag us out of our slippers and make a slip into or squeeze into a pair of skinny jeans. And we're celebrating our community's courage and resiliency. We're affirming the worth of ourselves and each other. We dance knowing that there are still LGBTQ elders alive today that could never have imagined being so bold. We dance because so many who fell victim 
to the AIDS epidemic are no longer here to dance themselves. So we do it for them. We dance in their memory. We dance because we are surrounded by others who also have to choose daily whether to come out to anyone and everyone who presumptively inquires about relations with the opposite sex. The grocery clerk, the dental hygienist, over and over and over again, negotiating in our minds, is this safe? We dance because in that club... We don't have to watch our backs like we do in the streets. We dance to celebrate, and especially during the month of June, the anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. The modicum of progress some of us have made in being fully accepted by our family of origins, all of this worthy of celebration. There's a peace, a freedom, a camaraderie, in a gay club that, especially during Pride Month, gives way to a level of joy that it can legitimately bring about a religious experience on the dance floor. It's a little bit of feedback on this. I know that's messing with you who wear hearing aids. So... And so I don't, when I say a religious experience, I don't mean this in a drunken or euphoric sense, but think about how or when you have felt connected or united with God or humanity or the universe or whatever you call it. Where were you? What were you doing? Maybe you held your newborn for the first time. Maybe you sat in quiet solitude on a mountain peak and breathed in the sweet air. Maybe you won a sports tournament or ran a marathon or experienced divinity while making love. All of these experiences can bring us close to what I often call the divine mystery by reminding us that we are part of a whole and that we can do things and feel love in ways we never imagined. This is what can be experienced in the safe haven of a gay club. There can also be drama and drag queen fights, but... This is something else that's experience. Even more so for Latino LGBTQ folks, the remnants of brutal colonialism, transgender roles and hypermasculinity reinforced by conservative Christianities, these create a need for spaces where LGBTQ Latinos can reconcile these two identities, being both Latino and queer. The guys can speak Spanglish in the woman's bathroom while applying eyeliner, and the girls can be anywhere on the gender expression spectrum and be no less Latina for it. And the genderqueer Latinos can feel free to bring new gender-neutral words into Spanish's very gendered grammar, such as ella instead of el or ella, and Latinx instead of Latino or Latina. The Pulse nightclub was no less sacred than this sanctuary right here. Or any synagogue or mosque, cathedral or temple. So when violence happens in a sacred space, when people are most at ease and have a sense of safety, 
how we feel right now. It's surely a heinous act. Also, like many of you, I'm sure I cringed when um, we saw that the gunman was a young Muslim man. Before we had information that might point to him being something <clears throat> of a self-loathing homophobe with a hyper-masculine, verbally abusive father, all we heard, all we knew was his name, his supposed interest in ISIS, and that he was Muslim. We know all too well what would follow. It's why we have the banner up right now in House and Hall that reads, We Stand With Our Muslim Neighbors. And sure enough, it took nanoseconds for the internet and cable news networks to be filled with Islamophobic rhetoric and frightening threats to Muslim communities. I was so incredibly proud of the turnout for our second annual Ramadan fast-breaking iftar this past Wednesday with our local Muslim Turkish community from the Dialogue Institute. It was such a huge show of solidarity. I don't think I've ever seen that many people in House and Hall at one time. This year, June is more than Pride Month because this year Pride happens to coincide with the holy month of Ramadan, <clears throat> excuse me, of Ramadan on the Muslim calendar. Many people in the U.S. know very little about Islam. I'll admit to knowing more about Buddhism and Judaism than I do about Islam. When I went before the Ministerial Fellowship Committee of the UU Association to be deemed ready and fit for ministry, this big deal interview, I was asked the question, among others, what are you most drawn to about Christianity, Judaism, and Islam? I had a small panic <laughs> internally and then answered, Christianity the radicalism of Jesus and his bravery to stand up against a powerful empire, Judaism, centuries of tradition and the emphasis on ritual and family, and <clears throat> Islam, the huge focus of universal love of God. And I took a guess at this because of knowing the hearts of my Muslim friends who are dear to me. <clears throat> and I didn't know if I was right or not. I just assumed that there's love in there somewhere. I didn't know enough. So it was like, I thought I'd remembered a concept like this in my learning about Islam, but I, I couldn't be paid to recall anything more than I just said. Last month, many of, uh, excuse me, last month, one of my Muslim friends posted an article about the Muslim concept of Rahma. It turns out Rahma was the idea that I had in mind when I took an educated guess at the interview question. But universal love of God seems to be an inadequate interpretation of the word. In fact, Rahma is often interpreted as mercy in English, though this too does not fully capture what it means. Rahma is one of the most central teachings of the messenger Muhammad. He said, I am not sent here to curse, but I was sent as a Rahma. Not only is the word and words derived from the root but, okay, not only, <clears throat> excuse me, is the word Rahma and the words derived from its root, 
the most prevalent word family found in the Arabic Quran, but it is also the most commonly used term to describe the attributes of God, Allah. There are famously 99 different names or attributes of God. Some include in, in the Muslim tradition, <clears throat> excuse me, some include Al-Basir, the All-Seeing, Al-Ghafur, the All-Forgiving, and Al-Hakim, the Wise. But the first two are Ar-Rahman, the All-Beneficent, the Most Merciful in Essence, the Compassionate, the Most Gracious, and Ar-Rahim, the Most Merciful, the Most Merciful in Actions. These two words, Al-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, are the first in the first sentence of every single chapter of the Quran, except for one, and that one chapter is devoted to Rahma. So, it's important. It's central. Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim is that first line. It's often spoken in conversation very casually between devout Muslims. It means, in the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful. The first line of almost every chapter in the Quran. These are very similar attributes. Most gracious, most merciful. But Ar-Rahman means the one who is defined by complete and universal Rahma. And Ar-Rahmin means the one who continuously shows much Rahma. But to understand this difference, we need to gain a better understanding of what Rahma is and if, if it isn't fully explained by being translated as mercy. Like many English speakers, when I hear someone is being merciful, I usually assume that this person is in a position of power and that they have the authority to punish, but they've decided for some reason to be lenient. This doesn't seem like a godly attribute. Aaron Persky, the judge in the recent controversial rape case, could be called merciful by this definition, since he delivered a ridiculously mild sentence to an admitted rapist. Also, oftentimes, leniency is not granted out of compassion. There are often ulterior motives, such as maintaining the good old boys club, or as in this case, or for political strategy. So, I don't know if that's a godly attribute either, if we're defining mercy like that. Gunnar Arslan, the speaker and one of the main organizers at last Wednesday's Iftar here, spoke to me a bit about Rahma. Does Rahma mean that God is ever forgiving of our sins? I asked him. No, he said. Rahma speaks to the fact that God regards us with mercy, and he has mercy for everyone and everything in creation. He has more mercy than is possible for anyone else to possess. Supreme mercy. I was still confused. I was struck. I was stuck in my understanding of the meaning of the word mercy. When I asked him if that is what is meant by mercy, the leniency, he said enthusiastically, no, not at all. 
Well, then what does mercy mean? That's hard to talk about, he said with a chuckle. It's like trying to explain to you what love is. He went on, mercy is what a mother feels for a child. The child has never done anything to earn that love, but they are just freely given it, even before they are born. When the child is, <clears throat> excuse me, when the child is hurt, the mother aches as well. Well, fathers too, he said, but Rahma is often regarded as a mother regards her child. It's often spoken of that way. <clears throat> so is Rahma love? I ask. No. <laughs> it's this type of mercy. <laughs> it contains love in it, but there are many types of love. Touche. <laughs> he goes on, Muslims must regard every person with this same feeling of mercy to try to please God. <clears throat> In the article, Rahma, not just mercy, Adnan Majid explains, <clears throat> of course, this connection of Rahma and motherly love is linguist linguistically unsurprising. For Rahma is related to the Arabic word Ram, which means uterus, womb, and figuratively, family ties. This close linguistic connection is so eloquently expressed in Allah's statement as transmitted in a Hadith Qudsi. I am Al-Rahman and created the Ram, uterus, and I named it after me. Therefore, if we are to grasp the Rahma that is core to God's very nature, we must look to what this feminine organ symbolizes. The nurturing emotions we find in mothers and the bonds that tie families together. However, mothers are not the only ones characterized by Rahma. The prophet himself embodied the quality when he would hug his grandchildren, kissing them as he hugged them. Now, in the patriarchal Bedouin culture of his day, this was considered an effeminate characteristic. I have ten children, and I have never kissed any of them, retorted a proud, disapproving Bedouin to Muhammad once. But the messenger, knowing the beauty of parental love in Allah's eyes, warned the man, he who shows no Rahma will be shown no Rahma. And in another instance, he reiterated, he who has no Rahma for children is not one of us. I'm trying still to fully understand this view of mercy. It's new to me. It's new to an English understanding of the word. But upon reading that our Rahman is the attribute of, all, attribute of Allah that means God's grace, blessings, love, and yes, this new to me definition of mercy it encompasses everything and everyone in the universe, I'm told. That's why it's supreme mercy. While I don't personally believe in a deity that is uh, who, what, where, or when, I can begin to see strands of my theology in the concept of Ar-Rahman as, as an attribute of the divine. Ar-Rahman is a measurable uh, uh, excuse me, our Rahmin is a measurable, observable act of compassion by God. 
If a Muslim is in a terrible accident and walks away unscathed, they may then pray a prayer of thanks, invoking the attribute Ar-Rahim. On the other hand, according to the attribute Ar-Rahman, just like a parent has to pour stinging hydrogen peroxide or alcohol on a scraped knee, so does God sometimes place us in situations whose favorable outcome we cannot see for the awful current state of affairs. This, of course, this notion falls in line with the Muslim belief in predestination. Learning about this while listening to the constant stream of news coverage of Orlando was actually comforting to me in a surprising way. No, I don't think that the divine placed those happy dancing people in the path of those bullets to make way for some predestined favorable outcome. But I do like to think that in reevaluating what mercy means and how we can strive for it, I felt personal agency in a crippling, a crippling grief that could have been could very well have been given way to feeling utterly helpless. If we can both mourn the dead and maintain an unconditional love for humanity as a whole, disturbed mass murderers don't come out on top. There is, of course, activism to take part in, policy change to affect, but for emotional helplessness, that feeling, there's a remedy that is needed. We will never make sense of such a massacre but there are ways of moving forward that both honor and mourn the dead and experience a personal spiritual transmission in our mourning through striving to know and to love this concept, this wisdom of Rahma, that feeling we can nurture that allows us to, allows us to allow our hearts to ache alongside others in pain. We need to... We need, excuse me, we need not lose ourselves to that pain, but to feel it, even fleetingly, is a rahma, a nurturing, compassionate love. During this holy month for both the LGBTQ family and our Muslim family, and especially for LGBTQ Latinos and for LGBTQ Muslims, may you love rahma and may Rahma be bestowed upon you. May it be so. Please join me in the words by which we extinguish our chalice, also found in your orders of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. So please do carry this loving mercy, this wisdom from a tradition that we hear so much criticized and scorned in your hearts. Go in peace.